All right, so it's dreary outside. We've got folks missing today, but I think, I think that maybe, not just maybe, I know, because we're going to open up the Bible, that God has something that He wants to talk to us about today. And I've got a couple of parameters of things that we're going to go over, but through this, I don't know how it may directly impact your life, but I do think that if we will listen, God will speak to us through His Word this morning. Um, to get us started, I want to ask if you, how many of you remember the movie? It's, I think maybe even there was a mini-series, but that would have been way before my time, so I can't even go there. But how many of you remember the movie, The Fugitive? Has anyone seen that? All right, so we got some of us. What about the Jason Bourne movies that are a little more recent? Got some of those, okay. All right, so those two movies, but then also, so hold on to those, but then also, let's think about miniseries, all right? So when you have a miniseries uh, on TV, you have like kind of a big overarching story, but then within that, there's individual episodes, and in each episode, there's kind of a crisis to be solved, there's a tension to be resolved, whether it's, you know, 24 from a while back, or uh, Stranger Things, there'll be a new one in 2019, you've got these different mini-series, and they always have an episode, right? All these different episodes, but there's little snippets and little uh, episodes throughout the mini-series. That's kind of where we're at in our series through 1 Samuel right now. We're in this section where David is now running from the tyrannical king named Saul, right? And so it's this long period, probably around 10 years, probably a decade, where he's hiding in caves, and he's running, and he's running, and he's running, and he's running. So that's the great big story. But then inside of that, we have all these little episodes, like a miniseries. So he is the fugitive. He is Jason Bourne. But in this miniseries, all these different episodes. And in these episodes, some of them are where he is just a boss, just like a Jason Bourne, just like the fugitive. And then we have other episodes where he is really being a type of Christ, prefiguring the work of Christ, very much doing that. But then there are also episodes where he's just an absolute fool. And he doesn't prefigure Christ. He's not a boss. He's just like me and you. Because even the best of men, you heard the or men at best. And it's that kind of episode that we have this morning. Where he is just being an absolute fool. Not walking with the Lord. Responding to fear with sin and foolishness instead of faith. But here is a comforting word for us. Is that God remains committed to him and with him even in the midst of his foolishness. God doesn't drop him, oh you fool, I'm done with him. He doesn't drop him. In the midst of his sin, in the midst of his foolishness, God is still right there. And that's a good word for me. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of, there's a couple of things. I want to walk us through the story just so you get the narrative. And we'll do some kind of drive-by applications in the midst of it. But then I want us to move to Psalm 56 that Jeff just read, which was written by David as he reflected on what we're about to read. It was written as he reflected on this period, this episode. And it's some lessons that he kind of learned. In a, in a reframing, he realizes, man, he responded to his fear in all these, you know, wrong ways. But he learns through it the right way to respond to fear. An antidote to fear. 
Not that fear will be gone. Not that we won't ever face fear in life. But when we do face fear, when we do have anxiety, when we do have worry, how to process through that and to see it dissipate as we turn our eyes to the glory of God and His goodness. And so that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. So we are going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you have a Bible, open it up to there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one around you. We'll be on page 244 in that one. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home. It's, it's yours. It's our gift to you. And so 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Read with me. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with this young man for such and such place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away, which is the Sabbath. And this is a Sabbath. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Tuck that one away for next week. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my, my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There's none like that. Give it to me. So what's going on here? Like I said, David is on the run. So in the last chapter that we looked at last week, he, he had begun running from Saul. And so he had, he had gone to Samuel the prophet. And then he had gone to the king's son, Jonathan. And now he's going to the priest, all right? Prophet, priest, king. He's tried them all. Now he's at the priest's house. He's at Ahimelech's house. And when Ahimelech comes out to meet him, all right, they're only two miles away from Gibeah, which is where Saul lives, very, very close. When Ahimelech comes out to meet him, he's nervous. And the reason he's nervous is because Ahimelech's got a brother named Ahijah. And I don't know what the deal with his parents were. Ahimelech, Ahijah. Like, I have a hard enough with Kira and Claire. I can't imagine if it was Ahimelech and Ahijah. It's going to be a hard day trying to yell those out. But he's got a brother named Ahijah. And Ahijah is Saul's personal chaplain. And so Ahimelech and Ahijah, still struggling with those names, Ahimelech and Ahijah, they have had to have talked. It's only two miles. So Ahimelech had to have heard that there's a tension going on in Saul's house, that David and Saul are, are at odds, and Saul wants to kill David. He's after him. And so here comes, and obviously Ahijah's going to paint it as Saul is the hero. And so here comes David. 
he's virtually all alone. There's a couple of folks with him, but he has no like big royal you know, entourage coming with him. And he's the hero of Israel. And so he's wondering what's going on. Why is this guy here by himself? And so Ahimelech asks him, why are you alone? And why is no one with you? And David lies to him. Straight up, bold face, lies. And makes up this whole story about how, you know, he's got this secret mission, just very dark ops on this. I mean, you've got this guy who in faith fought Goliath. But here in fear, he just lies. He's a guy who's thinking in extremes, and he thinks that the ends that he's trying to achieve can justify the means. I'm trying to achieve this good thing, so it's all right if I compromise just a little bit right here. And we've got to be careful of that line of thinking. God cares not just about the ends. He also cares about the means. As one theologian put it, ingenious falsehoods may seem to promote present security, yet they ensure future disgrace. Do not lay of falsehoods just to get present security with the risk of discrediting your whole life. It's a word for the church overall, not just us as individuals, but it is for us as individuals as well. But anyhow, David lies here, all right? I'm on this top secret mission from the king. I'm undercover. I can't tell you about it. You just need to trust me in all this. But I think Ahimelech has to see through this a little bit because no hero of Israel is going to be sent out on a top secret mission from the king and then stop by a priest's house to pick up food and weapons. It's not going to happen. But that's what David's trying to do here. And so he first asks for bread. Now David knows that the tabernacle is not a grocery store. But he also knows that there's the bread of presence. There's the showbread. Bread that's put out on a Sabbath before the Lord. And it's taken down the next Sabbath and it's replaced with hot bread. And the priests get to eat that stale bread that's been sitting out for a week in the Holy of Holies. And so he comes in he's hoping that maybe he can get some of that bread in his desperation. Because he has no food. He's on the run. He has no weapon. He's on the run. And so he comes in hoping that he can get this bread which is technically wrong for him to eat. It's only for priests. But Ahimelech, again, I think he kind of sees through it. I think he kind of wants to help a little bit. He says, hey, if you need it, I'm willing to give it to you. Because mercy is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. But I'm only going to give it to you if you're sexually pure. Now, I want to rabbit trail for just a second because what happens a lot of times here with some crazy uh, folks, they'll say, well, this is like just a, a, you know, this is a condemnation of sex. That God is very anti-sex. Folks, God is very pro-sex within the confines of a biblical marriage. Anything outside of that, whether it's premarital sex, extramarital sex, of any stripe, heterosexual, homosexual, it's all the same. It's sexual sin outside of God's design of one man, one woman, for life, biblical marriage. 
Inside of that, yes and amen. God's all about it. Procreation and pleasure. Outside of that, it can be damaging. And so because of that, God, who is God, who invented sex, who designed sex, who knows how it works best, had say it works best this way. You go that way, it's going to be bad. It's going to be damaging. And so sex is a good thing. This isn't a condemnation of sex. But it is a, hey, are you sexually pure? Have you been sexually pure? Are you ceremonially clean? And they are, and so with great generosity, Ahimelech gives them the bread. He stretches the wall, but he doesn't break the wall, and he feeds David. Now, why? what's the big deal in all this? What's the point of all this? Two. One, Jesus is going to reflect on this in the New Testament when he's talking about the fact that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He'll reflect on this. But right now, for where we're at, what we're talking about this morning, what I want you to see is, is to think about where does this bread come from? This bread comes from the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there's different sections. There's the Holy of Holies. This bread is laid in the Holy of Holies. It's been sitting in God's presence, right? Because the Holy of Holies is representative of, of God's presence with us. Like it's heaven, kind of. And so in a very real way, David is being fed bread from heaven. And who else has been fed bread from heaven? As they were wandering, running from a tyrannical king, out in the wilderness, out in the desert. Israelites, right? Manna fell from heaven. Friends, Jesus provides for his people. They were foolishly running, the Israelites, having to wander for a while because of some sin. And David is foolishly running and lying and sinning. But God still provides for him. He still provides even in the midst of his foolishness, and even in the midst of our foolishness. Jesus is the Lord of provision. He's the Lord of care. He gives food to the hungry, and he gives his presence to the lonely. And someone's like, hold on, Joe. David, no, 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 no. David's like purposefully lying here. He is purposefully trying to deceive here. He doesn't deserve this provision. Welcome to the gospel. This is the whole point of the Bible. That God gives mercy to people who don't deserve it. We don't deserve mercy, but God gives it to us. This is nothing new. If our being fed depended upon, even us, if our being fed depended upon us walking perfectly with God, all of us would be skeletons. It's grace. The Lord's showing mercy here. He gives us grace in salvation and accepting Jesus' substitute righteousness for our own and accepting Jesus' substitute death as if in penalty for sin, as if it was our own. And He gives it to us in life, continuing His faithfulness, even when we are faithless. Praise the Lord that He's not karmic. He's graceful. And so David doesn't deserve this bread, but the Lord feeds him here. And then we're going to turn to another episode, which is kind of the same thing, where David doesn't respond well, and the Lord preserves him anyhow. Something where David is, I mean, literally, 
This is one of the most foolish things you could do. And so look at verse 10 with me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, for anyone who's been paying attention the last couple of weeks, who else is from Gath? Big guy, really big guy. Goliath is from Gath. What sword is David carrying right now? Goliath's Gath. So, genius, I'm going to walk into Gath. Philistines, I've been slaughtering Philistines for years. I just got 200 foreskins so I could marry Mishael. And I've got Goliath's you know, sword, and I also struck him down, who is their heroes. And so I'm going to walk into this city of, Philist- of the Philistines, and, every- and it'll be a great idea. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David? The king of the land. They speak better than they even know. He's not king yet, though he's been anointed. Did they not sing to one another of him and dance as Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He's much afraid of Achish the king. And so David wakes up to what he's just done. Is what? Oh no. Right? And not a smart thing. So to kind of put it to you so you kind of catch the, the flavor of what's going on, how foolish this is, how many of you uh, deer hunt in here? Like two. Wow. I am not in Pine Log anymore. When you, all right, so those of you who do hunt, do you grind your own meat? Okay, well, let's just pretend that someone hunts and they grind their own meat. What David is doing here is, would be like a trophy buck walking up to your meat grinder. That is what he has just done. He has just walked into the meat grinder. He wakes up to what he's just done, and he's terrified. And whereas with Ahimelech, he lied to try to get himself out of something, here he's going to put on an Oscar-winning performance. Look at verse 13. Well, we'll start in 12 again. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? And this is a hilarious statement. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so David departed. Like he, he gets out of there. They let him go. From there and escaped to the cave of Adjulam. And so you've got David finagling here again. He's lied. Now he's playing this performance. He's not trusting the Lord. He's trusting himself. And in his unbelief and in his sin, who is he starting to resemble? Who has been doing this kind of, who, who has been the character who does this kind of stuff? Saul. David's starting to look just like Saul. In his actions, he looks like Saul. 
But remember, friends, the Lord doesn't judge just on the outside, but he looks on the inside, in the heart. And even though at times David looks like Saul, there is a world of separation between them because David loves God. He has a relationship with God. And Saul doesn't. Friends, this is part of a difference you need to realize in what it means to be a Christian. Like if you are his, he's not happy when you give in to foolishness, but he's not going to quit on you either. He's going to stay with you. He's our father. Like we, we've got to stop viewing God as Zeus, as if he's out to get us and is going to zap us. View him as a father. That's who he is. That's who Jesus describes him to be. And so with my kids, there is nothing they can do that would ever make me stop loving them. Ever. And there's nothing they can do that will make me love them more. And there's nothing they can do that will ever make me love them less. Why? Because they're my kids. And if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into the Father's family and you are His son or daughter. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more because his love for you is not based on you. It's based on Christ. And he can't love Christ less. And he can't love Christ more. And so you are his. And he loves you. And even in your folly and even in your foolishness, which he does not smile upon, he also does not smite you. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't drop you. He doesn't run out on you. This is good news for jacked up, broken people like us. And so I pray that is an encouragement to you this morning as we look at this. We look at this fear-driven foolishness. We still see the faithfulness of God even in the midst of foolishness. Because that's where we live probably most of the time. And God's with us in the midst of it. He didn't drop David. He won't drop you. But I want you to see also that a lot of times the foolishness in our lives is, is a symptom of an underlying cause. It is for David. David's main problem here is not the foolishness he acts out, that he carries out. His main problem it says so in verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid. So foolishness was the symptom, fear was the problem. And as David later reflected on this episode in his life, he wrote the Psalms of Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, based upon what he's gone through here. And he realized that, that, that this life, we're never going to be free, just absolutely free from fear. But he also learned that there's an antidote when it pops up to this fear. When we are afraid, there's something that we can do. And so if you'll turn to Psalm 56. So if you're at 1 Samuel and you're learning the Bible, you're going to go to the right Pretty much kind of to the middle of the entire Bible. Psalm 56, if you're in one of the black hardback ones around you, it'll be on page 476. 
Psalm 56, page 476 in the black card back ones. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Again, we can read the title above it to the choir master according to the dove of far off Terebinth, a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So he's reflecting on that. And these are kind of some lessons he learned out of this. I responded to fear this way. Here is how I should respond to fear and what I would do from now on. And so look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for many, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That's the summary statement of the antidote. When you are afraid, you actively trust in God. Okay, you turn to Christ. You don't turn to other coping mechanisms, alcohol, a tub of ice cream, three bags of potato chips. You turn to Christ. And so the antidote to fear is trusting in God. But not just in this willy-nilly, nebulous, non-defined God, but specifically remembering like four attributes of God that make Him utterly trustworthy. And folks, when you remember these four attributes of God, and you put your trust in God on the basis of these, I know for me, when I actively remember these four things about God, it always dissipates the fear. It always calms me down a little bit. It always brings the blood pressure down a little bit. And so what are these four attributes? Well, three of them are in this psalm. And then the fourth one, we'll go back to 1 Samuel. But the first one is this. It's God's strength. And so number one, trust in God's strength. If you want to jot some things down. Number one, trust in God's strength. Look back at verse 3 of Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And you skip down to verse 10. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so what David is saying is when he values God rightly and when he sees him in the glory of his splendor and he remembers his omnipotence, he remembers his power, he remembers that he is the God of the universe, sovereign commander of the universe, as we read, that nothing can stay his hand, that nothing is outside of his control. When he remembers that, why fear? If that's who God is, this is the whole point, really, of a book we frequently recommend in here called When People Are Big and God is Small. The whole point of that book is that we, we flip-flop things. But when we view God as big, we will see people return to their proper place. And David's saying when you get that, fear dissipates. What can flesh do to me? It's just flesh. But God. 
Several years ago, I went through a, I mean, when I was a kid, just to be straight up, I was about 12 years old. I don't know why this happened. I don't know how it came upon, but I grew mega anxious in my life. Lasted about two years. Don't know why it came on. Don't know why it went away. But uh, for whatever reason, I went from being a guy who, you know, hung out with my friends a lot and, and would spend the night with friends and neighbors all the time to becoming utterly terrified to do that. I couldn't do it. I would try, and I'd have to call my mom to come get me at like midnight, one in the morning. I'd make up excuses. Uh, I can't come over tonight. I got something going, like, for whatever. I became, what, what was going on in my mind, completely irrational, but for me it was very, very real, is that if I was not at home, my parents would die, and since I wasn't there, it would be my fault. Completely irrational. But it was real. And some of you may have things like this. Thoughts that are completely irrational, but for you it's terrifying. It is a real thing. And as I was just struggling with that for these two years, what helped me was this truth. And I couldn't have articulated it like this. The way I articulated it was on the words of, on the lips of Elvis Presley. And I'm not making any of this up. This is true. My dad was like a huge Elvis fan, and we had these things back then called cassette tapes, and I had a Walkman, and my dad had a tape that was by Elvis Presley called Peace in the Valley, and somehow, some random way, I grabbed that, and I was listening to it, and I mean, you listen to the music and whatnot today, it's not really something I would, you know, like jive on, but the lyrics of this one particular song called Stand By Me just gripped me, and I just flooded my mind with these. And this is what it says. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship out on the sea, thou who rulest wind and water, stand by me. When I'm growing old and feeble, stand by me. When I'm growing old and feeble, stand by me. When I do the best I can and my friends misunderstand, thou who never lost a battle, by me. Thou who's never lost a battle, stand by me. And in that strength, my fear would calm, my heart would calm. Friends, trust in God's strength. He's never lost a battle. He never will. And He's with you. Trust in God's strength. But not only that, that's one attribute. Another attribute, trusting God's care. It's not just that He's strong and it's just His strength out there, but it's a personal care. And so look at verse 5 of this psalm. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they work, they watch my steps. As they've waited for my life for their crimes, will they escape? And wrath cast down the peoples, O oh God. Listen to this. You have kept count 
of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Friends, God cares for you. He is not absent from your pain. He is not stoically aloof in your heartache. He doesn't shout, get over it. Like in those moments where, like David had here, where everything's crushing in in your life. And everything's going against you. Like everywhere you look, financially, in your marriage, in your occupation, in your kids, in society in general, everything's going against you. And what question comes up in your mind in that moment? Does God care? Does He really care about me? It says that He keeps count of your tossings. As you're wondering, as you're fretting, that He stores up His your tears in his bottle as if they're precious to him. Why? Because you are precious to him. If you're in Christ, you are his child. He cares for you. Even to the point of dying on a cross for you. Christ cares for you. And the greatest measure of love is this, that a man lay down his life one for another. And so in the midst of your storms, in the midst of your fear, remember the strength of God and remember that He cares for you. And then thirdly, remember His commitment to you. Look at the end of verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. Like even in the midst of all of his foolishness, all of his wonderings, David knows, this I know, that God is for me. And if you are in Christ, this is true of you. Paul reflected on this very thing in Romans 8. Do you realize if, if like, we only have Romans 8 because David wrote Psalm 56. We only have Psalm 56 because he was a fool in Gath. So God wastes nothing. He used that moment to give Psalm 56. Psalm 56 to give us Romans 8. Paul's reflecting on Romans. Paul is reflecting in Romans 8 on Psalm 56 when he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so as you are in fear and anxiety and worry comes upon your mind, remember God's strength, His glory, His splendor, His power, His care. He's not stoic. He's per he personally cares for me. And He's committed to me. This I know that God is for me. He went to the cross for you. Proof. And then one final one. So we've got trust in his strength, trust in his care, trust in his commitment to you. And then one final one. We're going to go back to the book of 1 Samuel to, find, to look at it. And it's trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. So flip back to 1 Samuel, again, page 244. We're actually going to be entering into chapter 22 now. Look at verse 1, or listen. David departed from there, right? He got out of Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Probably not a good idea to be kin to this guy if Saul wants to kill him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Little prefigurement of the church. 
The church is made up of this ragtag bunch of people who are in distress, who are in debt, who are bitter in soul, and they gather to the Lord's anointed, David, Jesus. Verse 3, though. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, so we're going to another king, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So he takes his parents to the king of Moab, and the king of Moab helps. We're talking about trusting in God's providence. Why would the king of Moab help here? Remember back to the book of Ruth. The lady from Moab. David's great-grandmother. Even back then, God had this moment in mind. See, God works plans way beforehand for your good, for my good, for his people's good. He wastes nothing. So even as we reflect on the book of Ruth, this brings a new light to Naomi's trial throughout that whole book. The death of her husband, the death of her sons. Facing certain poverty and destitution. One daughter-in-law's insistent faithfulness. All the quiet twists. Very, very quiet. Not loud, like quiet. Just, God's just working in the middle of normal things. Twists of circumstance that bring Boaz and Ruth together. On and on we could go all the way down to David finding someone to keep safe his parents while he's on the run, old Naomi, a hundred years previous, could have never had a clue that her suffering would bear much fruit for her great-grandson, who is the precursor to Jesus. Friends, God plans His kindness long beforehand. He directed circumstances here long in advance in, in, in order to bring a ray of hope and relief to David's present distresses, and He does it in our lives as well. And most of the time, we never see it. Most of the time we never see it, but sometimes you can see it. So think on your life for a minute. As you look back and you see how God maybe worked in quiet ways, seemingly ordinary ways, but they are very providential to bring about things that you had no idea were coming, but He's working for you towards it, in it. Like, for me, when... The Lord gave me an ability to run. I thought that was just about all about me and me. You know, I'm going to go be a pro runner and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But it took me to Georgia Tech. I had plan no plans on anything, but there I found myself being discipled by this guy named Marcus Hinton for the next two years and my faith really blossomed. Sarah, my wife now, is not a Christian. She came to faith. As this guy Marcus... His wife led her to the Lord. We wound up getting married. We, go to Lith- uh, we get jobs in Atlanta. I'm working for a company called Lithonia Lighting, and I am asked to join this Bible study if I would be interested. And I was like, sure. So I just go to this Bible study, and they start talking about things I have never understood, and they bothered the heck out of me. And so I started reading my Bible in depth, studying like crazy. I got in a small group at my church. And in the midst of this small group, all these 
like out of that small group, and two years later, there were five of us, four of us wound up going to seminary, different ones. My next door neighbor that I rode to uh, work with, uh, we live in an apartment complex. This just happened to happen. He winds up going to RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's telling me all about it. And so I've got all this stuff around me. I wound up, you know, uh, going to seminary and coming out of seminary, I am choosing, you know, where I'm going to take a job. And I wound up taking a job in Nashville. You know, how did you come to that decision? It was the only person who offered me a job. <laughs> Pretty easy. But the Lord is, was at work in that. He was doing things that I had no idea about. Providence, you know, exists today because that. Grace Church exists today because of that. And in the midst of that, like, he's also brought me to Nashville, where there's this thing called Vanderbilt Hospital. One of the best cardiac hospitals in the world. Of all the places I could go, how did I just happen to be here? Because God knew I was going to have a baby who was going to need to have heart surgery when she was three months old. And Williamson County Schools are benchmarked nationally for children who have special needs. God's just provident. This is just my life. We could do this with every single one of you for hours. And God providentially works in each of our lives because He cares for us. And so when fear comes up in your lives, remember these things. Remember He's strong. Nothing can stay his hand. Remember, he personally cares for you. He's not stoic asking you to get over it, but he cares. He stores up his, your tears in his bottles, and he's committed to you. And he's providential in your life. He lays these things out. And you don't even see most of them. These are just a couple we can see most of these things we have no clue about. But it's just God in His kindness doing these things because He's good and He's kind and He loves His children even in the midst of our foolishness. And so be encouraged by that this morning. Be encouraged by that this morning. Trust His strength. Trust His care. Trust His commitment. Trust His providence. Hang on to those things. That's the antidote when fear pops up. Fear will not ever go away. We will face fear. But when it comes, trust in God. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to enlarge our view of you. That we would lift up our eyes and see you, in the glory of your splendor and in your majesty, and that as we view you rightly, we would then view our problems rightly. They're not out of control. They're firmly in the hand of our omnipotent, caring, committed, providential God of you. And let that give strength in our weakness. Because we do know that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Help us to look to you, our rock of ages, our mighty fortress. 
our God who is greater. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.